This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him, he who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. Give each of you an opportunity in the privacy of your priesthood to make sure you're ready to study God's Word. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, on this Memorial Day, we do thank you for the freedoms that we have, these freedoms that were gained through the sacrifice of so many lives, so many who have given the supreme sacrifice that this nation may survive with its freedoms intact. Father, we live in a time when this is taken lightly, when people have forgotten how important freedom is and they have lost a concept of the significance of personal freedom. And this is due to the fact that we have departed from an understanding of your word and the doctrinal core that undergirds the capacity for freedom in a nation. Father, we pray that as those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be an effective witness to the unbelieving culture of our country. And Father, we pray for our nation that you would give wisdom and guidance to its leaders, to those in Congress, to our president to those in the judicial, judicial branch. Father, we pray that you might uh, guide and direct them and that there might be a return to the foundation principles upon which this country was, was established. Father, we pray that if this is not the case, that as believers in this nation, that we might maintain our endurance to stand fast to the truth despite the overt pressure of hostility antagonism to your word and the pressure from the cosmic system around us to to yield and to go along with the relativistic value systems that surround us. Father, we pray that as we study your word today, we might be impressed once again with your magnificence, your greatness, and the value of doctrine for giving us soul protection and for our relationship with you that we might understand that, that our ultimate purpose is to have a uh, personal relationship with you that, that it is through your power, through your grace, that we might glorify you in everything we think and do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout the scriptures, we see the principle that freedoms are gained and maintained through a strong military. Now, in about two weeks, when we finish our 
Old Testament orientation series in the first hour, we're going to begin a series in Judges. Now, Judges is a book for our times. It is, uh, and as we go through that study, we're going to see many different things, but the key principle in Judges is that is a verse that's repeated twice. Now, one thing you ought to note is that any time you get into the Scriptures, and in any particular book, there is a verse repeated twice. It's sort of like the Holy Spirit knocking on our skull saying, wake up, pay attention, this is important. There's one verse in Proverbs that is quoted twice. It says, there's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death. There's a verse in Judges that is almost parallel. It says, there was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what that first clause really means is there was the people had rejected all authority because the king was God. They had rejected God as the authority, so they did what was right in their own eyes. They were awash in spiritual and moral relativism, and they were succumbing to the pressure from the outside culture, of the, the, the paganism of the outside culture, and they were conforming to their thought forms and their practices, and they were losing their distinctiveness as God's people. And so time and time again... God disciplined the nation Israel through invasion. One time after time, they go through these various cycles during the period of the Judges where surrounding nations invade, subjugate, and enslave the people and steal. They go through financial crises, economic crises. They go through uh, famines, all of this because of their spiritual failure. And what we discern in the midst of this is spiritual failure seems to lead to a distorted concept of reality so that it, it, the, the military strength is weakened and becomes impotent. And they lost sight of that fact. But again and again, when, God, when the people repented, God raised up a deliverer. And that's really the concept behind the word for judges is a deliverer. God raised up a deliverer who restored their freedom through military victory. So this is a biblical principle. And at Memorial Day this time each year, it is a time for us to remember those who have fought, those who have given the supreme sacrifice for our nation to preserve our freedoms. One of my favorite speeches was given by General of the Army's Douglas MacArthur, and it says many things that are important in relation to divine establishment. This particular speech was given on the 26th of January, 1955, and it was on the occasion of his 75th birthday that he had traveled to Los Angeles to participate in several civil events, which included the dedication ceremonies of what is known as MacArthur Park. They unveiled a statue there, and he made the following speech, which I will read to you. I have listened with deep emotion to these solemn proceedings. My heart is too full for my lips to express adequately my thanks and appreciation for the extraordinary honor you do me. Even so, I understand full well that this memorial is intended to commemorate an epic rather than an individual, an armed force rather than its commander, a nation rather than its servant, an ideal rather than a personality. This but increases my pride that my name has been the one chosen as a symbol of an epic struggle and victory by millions of unnamed others. It is their heroism, their sacrifice, their success that you have honored today in so an unforgettable manner. I and the statue in this park are but the selected reminders of their grandeur. Most of them were citizen soldiers, 
sailors and airmen, men from the farm, men from the city, men from the schoolroom, from the college campus, men not dedicated to the profession of arms, men not primarily skilled in the art of destruction, men amazingly like those you see and meet and know each day of your lives, but men animated, inspired, ennobled by the sublime cause, the defense of their country, their native land, their very hearthstones. The most divine of all human sentiments and the impulses guided them. The spirit and willingness to sacrifice. He who dares to die, to lay down his life on the altar of his nation's need, is beyond doubt the noblest development of mankind. In this he comes closest to the image of his creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, that the human soul might live. These men were my comrades in arms. With me they knew the far call of the bugles at Reveille, the distant roll of drums at nightfall, the endless tramp of marching feet, the incessant whine of the sniper's bullet, the ceaseless rattle of sputtering machine guns, that ominous roar of threatening cannon, the sinister wail of air raid sirens, the deafening blasts of crashing bombs, the stealthy stroke of the hidden torpedoes, the amphibious lurch over perilous waves, the dark majesty of the fighting ships, the mad din of battle lines and the stench, and all the ghastly horror and savage destruction of a stricken area of war. They suffered hunger and thirst, the broiling suns of relentless heat, the torrential rains of tropical storms, the loneliness and utter desolation of jungle trails, the bitterness of separation from those they loved and cherished. And they went on and on and on when everything within them seemed to stop and die. They grew old in youth. They burned out in searing minutes of all that life owed them, everything of their tranquil years. When I think of their patience under adversity and their courage under fire, their modesty and victory, I am filled with an emotion of admiration I cannot express. Many of them trod the tragic path of unknown fame that led to a stark white cross above a lonely grave. And from their tortured, dying lips, with the dreadful gurgle of the death rattle in their throats, always came that same gasping prayer that we who are left would go on to victory. I do not know the dignity of their birth, but I do know the glory of their death. And in these troublesome times of confusion and bewilderment, international sophistication, let no man misunderstand what they did and that for which they died. These were patriots, plain and simple. They were men who fought and perchance died for one reason alone, for their country, for the United States of America. No complex philosophies of world intrigue and conspiracy dominated their thoughts. No elaboration or extravagance of propaganda dimmed their sensibilities. Just just the simple fact their country had called them, just the devoted doctrine of Stephen Decatur, when he said, My country, may she always be right, but right or wrong, my country. Be not deceived by strange voices heard across the land decrying this old and proven principle of patriotism. Although it has been from the beginning the main bulwark of our national strength and integrity, seductive murmurs are arising, that it is now outmoded by some more comprehensive and all-embracing philosophy that we are provincial and immature or reactionary and stupid when we idealize our own nation, and that there is a higher destiny for us under another and more general flag that 
No longer when we send our sons and daughters to the battlefield should we see them through all the way to victory. That we can call upon them to fight and even to die for some half-hearted and indecisive effort. That we can plunge them recklessly into war and then suddenly decide it is the wrong war or the wrong place or the wrong time or ever, or ever that we can call it not a war at all but by some more euphonious or gentler name. That we can treat our loved ones as expendable although they are our own flesh and blood. And even in times of peace, for some romantic reason, they must share not as a gesture of generosity, but as a bounded duty, their national blessings and goods built from nothing to a height never before reached by man with others. Whether through neglect or not, they have not fared as well. That we, the most powerful nation in the world, have suddenly become dependent on others for our security and even our welfare. Listen not to these voices. Be they from one political party or the other, be they from the high and the mighty or the lowly and the forgotten, heed them not. Visit upon them the righteous scorn born of the past sacrifices of your fighting sons and daughters. Repudiate them by word and deed in the marketplace, on the platform from the pulpit. Those who are our friends will understand. Those who are not, we can pass them by. Be proud to be called a patriot or a nationalist or whatever you will if it means you love your country above all else. And you will place your life, if need be, at the service of your flag. Every time I read that, I'm impressed with the prophetic understanding that MacArthur had some 30 years ago about where we are today in this nation. So much further down that path of self-destruction. Of course, we know the only solution to life's problems is the problems of a nation is a spiritual solution. It's the God solution. It's not a solution based on some kind of political activism or Christian activism. It's, uh, and that's not to say we shouldn't be involved politically because as citizens of this nation with a franchise given to each of us, we should be. But it is how we utilize that. The real solution is a spiritual solution. And unless there is a massive turn by this nation, as there was in Nineveh under the ministry of Jonah, back to the, to the truth, reception of the gospel, positive volition to doctrine, then we will just continue down this path of self-destruction. And that's going to make it more and more difficult for each of us as believers to maintain a walk with the Lord, simply because the temptations will grow stronger, there will be greater adversity, there will be, um, there will be tribulations and testing and opposition and persecution from those who are not believers, and this we will see more. We'll see it legally established. We will see all kinds of things on this nature over the coming years. So it is incumbent upon us to take the time now while we can to fortify our souls with doctrine and to understand all we can about our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, open your Bibles with me to John chapter 17. We're just going to start a brief review of where we are this high priestly prayer. We're studying through John. We have gone through the upper room discourse, and as we come to John 17, there is a shift in the action. If you were a screenwriter, this would be a dramatic moment as Jesus' instruction of his disciples ceases, and he turns to the Lord in prayer, lifting his eyes to heaven. We've read this and we've said that, that once we come to this point, we see Jesus lifting his eyes to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, 
that the Son may glorify thee. And then in verse 5, glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was, we begin to ask questions about the nature of the second person of the Trinity with the first person of the Trinity. Now, this opens up a whole series of important questions that are rarely addressed and even less frequently understood about the person of Jesus Christ. And the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross is dependent upon his person. If he is not who he claims to be or who the Bible claims him to be, then he cannot have achieved what the Scriptures claim he achieved. So we started off, as we looked at the prayer, by asking certain questions. In what sense is Jesus Christ subordinate to God the Father? Secondly, is this subordination merely in time or is it eternal? Third, is this subordination one of role and function or a subordination of essence? And fourth, how are we to describe the relationship between God the Father and God the Son throughout all eternity? What's the terminology? What kind of phrases do we use? As we have advanced in our study, we looked at the doctrine of the Trinity, and we saw that this prayer focuses on the on Jesus Christ and his relationship to the Father. And in understanding the Trinity, we saw that that God exists in three equal persons. They have the same identical essence. They are co-equal and co-eternal. But human language is faulty. When we think of the concept of person, we think of an individual subsistence. But there's not really an individual subsistence as such in the Trinity. They are distinct in one sense, but there is this inner unity that is beyond our, our ability to fully express. So... They're distinct, but they are one. There is a plurality we saw, but there are also distinctions. They have separate, clearly separate consciousnesses, but they have the same will. They have identical will. So we, we struggle in some sense with the vocabulary to express this, this relationship of God that we have no frame of reference for in anything in the creation. So we looked at the Trinity, first of all, to establish that principle We saw in that study that no doctrine is more significant, more foundational, more important for us to understand than that of the doctrine of God, what what theologians call theology proper. Proverbs 9.10 states, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So this is foundational to any doctrinal understanding into our spiritual life. In the New Testament, we're told that as we advance in our understanding of God, then it drives us on to a fuller understanding of God. It's the principle that Isaiah articulated, that it's line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, that we grow in our knowledge incrementally, and as we learn more about God, we learn then more about God. But it is only as we learn and assimilate those starting points that we're able to advance to more advanced understanding. We looked at the deity of Christ. We saw that the titles exclusive of deity are, are ascribed to Jesus, that he is inseparably identified with God. He is called God specifically in several passages. He has the attributes of deity. He is worshipped as God. He claimed to be God. He performed works which only God can perform. 
And finally, we saw last time that the New Testament ascribes to Jesus the works of Yahweh in the Old Testament, which identifies Jesus with Yahweh of the Old Testament. Now, that's like building a foundation. We've seen the Trinity. We've seen the deity of Christ. We've seen his inseparable connection to Yahweh of the Old Testament. And so now that we understand clearly that the Scriptures present Jesus as undiminished deity and true humanity, and that he possesses all of the attributes of deity fully, we have to ask some questions to pursue our understanding of Scripture. Scriptures state that Jesus is the Son of God. But what does that mean? Did he, when did he become the Son of God? When we think of the word Son, we think of birth. We think of derivation. Did he become the Son of God at his birth? Did he become the Son of God at his baptism? Did he become the Son of God at the resurrection? Or did he become, does he become the Son of God at his exaltation at the second coming when he returns in all of his glory as the King of kings and Lord of lords? Did the second person of the Trinity always exist as the Son of God, or was there some time when he became the Son of God, or or is this simply a title that that somehow is applied to him in relation to his role in the plan of salvation? If we ask that question, did Jesus Christ become the Son of God at some point, does that mean then, and it does, that he, it would imply that there was a time when he was not the Son of God? Put it in more basic terms, if there was a time when he was not the Son of God, then there was a time when there was not the Father. And yet the Scriptures present the first person of the Trinity as the Father from all eternity, and that means that Jesus could be the Son from all eternity. So the, the position that has been held at least since the 5th century, 4th century A.D., is that Jesus always existed as the Son. The term they use that we will see is that he is eternally begotten. Now, that's kind of a fuzzy term, and I want to, we'll take some time to look at that this morning. But it is to express that he's not created, he was eternally begotten. And there's always existed this father-son role and the same relationship, the whole, and the Holy Spirit also had a relationship to the Father and the Son. Now, as we push beyond the normal parameters of a study on the Trinity, we need to look at some key terms that are used in the in this Scripture. First is the term Son of God. What exactly does that imply? What does that mean? How do we understand that? Second, the Scripture uses this term firstborn, that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. That seems to suggest to us that first in terms of a series... But does it imply something else? And the third word we need to look at is the term, the Greek term monogenes, translated begotten, that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. So we'll begin by examining these terms. First of all, the Son of God. This word is used 42 times in terms of the full title, Son of God, huios theu, or huios tu theu in the Greek, is used 42 times to refer to Jesus Christ, but the term just just referring to him as simply the Son is used many more times. So this is an exclusive a title that is exclusive to Jesus Christ, not a plural sons of God, but just the term son of God. The problem that we have is 
that we have a tendency to understand the term son in a creaturely sense of derivation. See, this is the same problem when we talk about love. Just, this just occurred to me. I got in some lengthy discussions about the love of God while I was in Houston the last couple of days. And one of the issues is how do you define it? And see, what happens is we read a word like love in the Scriptures and what we import when we read that, what we import into that is, uh, we'll get that projector turned up here. What we import into the term son is our frame of reference. So we start being anthropomorphic about God. Uh, we start creating God in, in our image. So when we read the love of God, we tend to read into the term love all of the things from our frame of reference in terms of human love. Well, the same thing is true. We look at the term son of God, and so whenever we see a son in our experience, it always indicates some kind of creaturely derivation that it has some beginning. So what we do is you have to look at the word son in the Scriptures and let the Scriptures define what that means because it is not being used in the same way it is normally used in everyday uh, conversation. So Son of God is used 42 times to refer to Jesus Christ. And point number two, the problem is that it's usually used to, uh, we tend to understand the term Son in a creaturely sense of derivation, descent, offspring, or birth. Now, this is the problem that the early church encountered when a presbyter, or excuse me, a deacon in Alexandria, Egypt, named Arius, began to teach that there was a time when Christ was not. That was his big phrase. There was a time when Christ was not. In other words, the Father exists from eternity, but Jesus has derived deity. He is created at some times, and God imparts to him deity. So he looked at the Son as a creature. This is the problem. It's really the earliest form of what we now call Jehovah's Witnesses, that there's a time that Jesus Christ isn't full, undiminished, undiminished deity. Now, what happened when Arius began to teach that, it raised the question of Jesus' essential relationship to the Father. And basically, the question that they were answering is, what was Jesus before he came? What was his nature? And the battle centered around three Greek words. The first Greek word is heteros. H-E-T-E-R-O-S. Heteros plus ousia, which was the Greek O-U-S-I-A for being. That he was of a different being or a different subject, uh, a different substance. The next suggestion was that he was homoousios. H O M O U O H O M O O U S I A S. Homoousios. That's how it's spelled. Homoousios. And that was the position that he is homo of the same substance, identical substance with the Father. But the compromise position came along and said, no, Jesus is 
Homoi Usias. H-O-M-O-I-O-U-S-I-A-S. Homoi Usias. Now, the only difference between this word and this word is this letter I in the English or iota, although now we pronounce it iota, iota in the, in the Greek. Now, sometime in your life you've heard the phrase, well, that really doesn't make an iota's worth a difference. That's where, this is where that came from. Back in the 1700s, when Gibbon wrote his work on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, Gibbon hated Christianity. And he blamed Christianity for the fall of the Roman Empire. And he said, see, all these Christians, all they do is they sit around and they argue about these little things that don't make any difference, like whether or not an I ought to be in the Word. Well, it doesn't make an iota's worth a difference. See, now you know where it comes from. See, most things come from something biblical. And uh, that's what he argued. And it does make a lot of difference. I mean... It's the difference between having a salvation and not having a salvation. Up here, Jesus is the same substance as the Father, so He's undiminished deity, and He can go to the cross and die for our sins. Here, He's just a creature, and He can't die for anything. His death isn't effective. So, one little letter makes all the difference in the world, and that was one of the major arguments, one of the major fights that took place in the early church. Was Jesus of the same nature as the Father, or similar nature of the Father. So we will have to, and we are investigating what all of this means. Now the term son is used to describe various attributes of a person. It's an idiom both in Hebrew and it was used in the New Testament. Son of is used to describe various attributes or characteristics of a person. It is therefore an adjectival phrase. Let's just look at some examples of this in the Scriptures. Number 17.10 states, But the Lord said to Moses, Put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels. Now, in the Hebrew, it's sons of rebels. But it's talking about the character of these people. They are rebels. It is not that their parents were rebellious. It is that they demonstrate the characteristic of rebels. So the Hebrew is, Sons of rebels, that you may put an end to their grumblings against me so that they should not die. And Psalm 89.22 states, The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. It's not talking about somebody whose father was wicked. It is talking about somebody whose character is wickedness. They demonstrate that attribute in their life. Second Kings 6.32 Now Elisha was sitting in his house. And the elders were sitting with him, and the king sent a man from his presence. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent to take away my head? Now, it's not talking about the fact that this guy's daddy was a murderer. It's talking about the fact that he demonstrates this attribute or characteristic of murder in his life. He is a murderer. That this son of a murderer has sent to take away my head. Job 30, verse 8. In the English, you just read fools, even those without a name. They were scourged from the land. But the Hebrew calls them sons of fools. It's not talking about the fact that their parents were foolish. It's talking about that this individual demonstrates the characteristics of a fool. 1 Samuel 25:18, one of my favorites. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do. For evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And he is such a worthless man. Son of Belial. Now, I, I've, I've gone through the Hebrew text in Samuel several times, and it's, I don't know who wrote Samuel, 
but it's extremely earthy. In fact, if you gave it a literal translation, it would shock most Christians. He uses a very down-to-earth language to describe many things. And uh, so it doesn't just say worthless man, it's a son of Belial. And Belial was was a term of extreme derision. And we would almost, some people would call it profanity, just strong language, but we're too afraid to really translate things as they would be into English. So this is sort of the Hebrew version of an SOB. So no one can speak to him. So that's a son of Belial, someone characterized by wickedness. Proverbs 31.5, Lest they drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. But the Hebrew isn't afflicted, it's the sons, b'nei oni. The sons of affliction. Ezra 4.1 Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile, and it doesn't say people of the exile in the Hebrew, it says the sons of the exile, those who were in the exile. It's not talking about the descendants, one generation removed from the exile, but it is talking about those who were exiled, and they're called the sons of the exile. That's what characterized them. Psalm 89.22, the enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. Once again, we have a similar phrase that we saw earlier, or we did see it earlier. I've got it in here twice. Amos 7.14, then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. Now, he's not talking about that he's not a prophet or his father a prophet. That's not his point. He is saying, I am not a prophet and I don't have the characteristics of a prophet. Also describes a person's nature in Isaiah 51.12. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who is made like grass? Now, son of man here is related to someone who has the attributes of humanity. Isaiah 19.11. The princes of Zoan are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest, as wisest advisors has become stupid. How can you, you men say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise? See, son of the wise doesn't mean your father was wise, but it means you're characterized by wisdom. Acts 4.36, we see it in the New Testament even. Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. Barnabas was characterized by the attribute of being an encourager. Mark 3.17, the James and John, the two brothers, uh, sons of Zebedee. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he, that is Jesus, gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. It spoke of their personality. They were, they were strong, vocal uh, men. Luke 10.6, and if a man of peace, literally in the Greek it's a son of peace, someone who is characterized by peace, is there. Ephesians 2.2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So this is talking about people who are characterized by rebelliousness and disobedience to God. And then in 17, John 17.12, we have the term the son of perdition. Not one of them perished. But the son of perdition, this is talking about Judas, and it's the same word used in the Greek for perdition that is used of perishing in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Apollumi, it's the same word used 
The noun form used, the son of perdition, indicates that he is characterized by the fact that he is going to perish. He is going under eternal condemnation and is lost. So the term son of perdition is used to describe Judas, which tells us, of course, that he was not a believer. Now, the conclusion from all of this evidence is to say that titles such as Son of God describe Jesus' essential character of deity. It is not simply a title given to him, as you might give a title of president or CEO to some human, but it is a description of his essential character that he is undiminished deity. The term Son of Man emphasizes his humanity, and the term Son of David indicates that he is among the class of Davidic heirs. So this is not just simply a title tacked onto him, but it says something about his essential nature. Now that's the first term, Son of God. The second is the term Firstborn. To us, the term firstborn indicates order of birth or origin. But in the Bible, this term often, it can mean that, but it often relates to priority or rank rather than chronological order. So it's not just simply ordering first, second, third, fourth, but it indicates can indicate more the concept of, of rank or priority. The Greek term is prototakos. Prototakos, P-R-O-T-O-T-O-K-O-S, and it's applied to Jesus in five passages. Romans 8.19, Colossians 1.15 and 18, Revelation 1.5, and Hebrew 1.6. He is called the firstborn of many brethren. Jesus is the firstborn. Now, to understand this, we have to understand some things about uh, its Hebrew background. In Hebrew society, you had the operation of the law of primogeniture, mainly, and that is that the eldest son receives a double portion of inheritance. He is called the firstborn. So the eldest son received a double double inheritance, and he is rewarded with honor and prestige, and the family name primarily goes down through the oldest son. But if the oldest son fell out of favor with the father he could be replaced by one of the other sons. So if number one son turned out to be a real loser and a drunk and turned out to be the prodigal son, then dad could come along and say, well, I'm going to disinherit you. You're no longer the firstborn. Number four son, I really like. He's sharp. He's positive to doctrine. He's growing to maturity. He's going to be the firstborn son. So the term firstborn would be a, is a technical term for the heir and the one who has, has rank and priority over all of the other sons. So the term firstborn could often be applied to any of the other sons based on inheritance decision of the father. This is the principle that is stated over and over, or found over and over in the scriptures, that often the younger, excuse me, this should be restated, the, the older serves the younger. The older serves the younger. The normal procedure was that the younger would serve the older, but this was reversed in many instances. For example, Ishmael was born first, but he served Isaac. The promise went to Isaac, the uh, second son of Abraham, because Ishmael 
was conceived outside by, by Hagar, not by Sarah, and Isaac was the child of promise. Esau, of the twins, Esau was first, Jacob came out second, but Esau served Jacob. The line went down through Jacob. Reuben, who was the older of the twelve sons of, of, uh, of uh, Israel, of Jacob, served Joseph, who was the younger. Joseph became the primary one who ruled over the other brothers. Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph were Manasseh and Ephraim. Ephraim was the youngest, but Manasseh was to serve Ephraim in Genesis 48:13 through 20. Aaron was the older, but Aaron served Moses. In terms of nations, Gentiles were on the scene long before Israel, but Israel is called the firstborn of God, and, is, and the Gentiles serve Israel, Exodus 4, verse 22. And then of the sons of David, Adonijah, who was older, was not the designated heir. The, king, the kingship did not go down through Adonijah. It went to Solomon. Adonijah served Solomon. So from this we see a principle that the elder serves the younger. And when the younger son is elevated above the, the older... He takes on the title of firstborn in terms of rank. So it is a title of position and honor and prestige, not necessarily indicating uh, chronological order. Conclusion, Christ is the firstborn because he deserves the preferential share in honor and inheritance. He is the heir of God. And we become joint heirs with Christ, but he is the one who earns the inheritance because of his work at the cross. So firstborn indicates his priority, his rank, his honor, not his chronological, not anything related to chronology. Then we come to the third important word in this discussion, that is begotten. Begotten, the Greek term is monogenes. Monogenes. Now, usually you will have this translated, sometimes uniquely born. There's a lot of uh, discussion in the literature about just what the root is. Mono is much as it means much in Greek as it does in English. It means single, just as you have your old recordings. For those of you who have a little gray in your hair, you remember having mono recordings instead of stereo. Some of you out there probably don't even remember 8-track cassettes, so we're not talking to you. <laughs> Mono means single, and genes comes from the verb ganao, which means classification or kind. We see this come over into English in the word genus. We're talking about in, in classification in biology, genus or species. It means kind, not birth. See, sometimes you folk, the, 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 there's a synonym, or, or excuse me, a homonym, that also means birth. So that's why it was originally translated and understood as firstborn, mono or only born or uniquely born, but gana'o comes has to do with the classification or kind, and so it should be should be translated as it is here. It means unique or one of a kind. Jesus is the unique or one of a kind son. This same phrase is used in Hebrews to refer to Isaiah, I mean, excuse me, to, uh, is, is used to refer to Isaac because Isaac is a uniquely born, unique son to, to Abraham. 
because he is born as a result of the miraculous intervention of God. So monogenes has the basic connotation of unique. In Kittle's uh, Theological Dictionary of the uh, uh, New Testament, he says, in compound with the, with the word genes, adverbs describe the nature rather than the source of derivation. Hence, monogenes is used for the only child, and more generally it means unique or incomparable. Unique or incomparable. So when we read that Jesus is the only begotten, it means he is the unique or incomparable son of God. There is nothing to compare him with. He is a one of a kind. The problem is that we tend to take the term son too literally, as if it implies a time when Christ did not exist or only begotten Son indicates His, his human birth. But it is used to, and it is applied to Him prior to and in reference to things prior to the incarnation. It is used nine times in the New Testament, three times of an only child, Luke 7.2, Luke 8.42, and Luke 9.38. And five times it refers to Christ and one time it refers to Isaac in Hebrews chapter 11. Isaac was a unique son to Abraham. Thus, this expression indicates status, and Christ has status as the unique son of as the unique son of God. Now, let's turn to Psalm 2 and look at that and how this relates. Psalm 2. Specifically, verse 7. The second psalm is quoted about four times in the New Testament. One of the most significant psalms related to the nature of Jesus Christ. The context, we, I ended with this last time, the context in Psalm 2 relates to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in victory over the nations at the second advent and his victory at Armageddon. Now we read in verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now what time does this refer? The word begotten is the Hebrew yalad, which has a variety of meanings. As, as uh, monogenes in the New Testament, so that tells us specifically what is meant here. And it has, still has the idea of uniqueness. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now the question is, when is this taking place? Now, the first part of the verse refers to the decree of God. Now the decree of God is referred to theologically as one decree. We don't talk about the decrees of God. Even though there are many facets to the decree of God, it is considered one decree. And the decree of God is eternal. Because God's omniscience is eternal. He's always known everything. The decree of God is always there. It is eternal. There wasn't a time when God did not know this, and this was not in effect. So the decree of God is eternal, and this uh, indicates that sonship must also be eternal. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. But see, some people will look at this, and what they try to do is say, well, uh, Jesus becomes the Son at, the, at His return in victory at the second coming. 
But there are problems with this in the way it's used in other passages. For example, when you look at this verse, it says the declaration is there that, that you are my son. So the first part you say, this is the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten thee. So the phrase, I have begotten thee, is parallel to the declaration, thou art my son. So these things come together at one time. It's related to the declaration of a king, point number three. The idea relates to the promise in the Davidic covenant where Jesus said, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. But when it's used there, see, the only point I'm making here is it's used in 2 Samuel 7 as related to the declaration of a king. Now, 2 Samuel 7.14 is a verse that people will come along and say, well, see, Jesus says, the Father says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. That indicates when he comes and his incarnation. Well, the problem is that in 2 Samuel 7, the sonship there is referenced to the sonship of David, not the Son of God title. So that is a creation title of the Lord, not his eternal title. But the only point I'm making by going to that is that, that this is a declaration of a king. So the context of Psalm 2 indicates the second advent when Jesus returns to the earth as king of kings and Lord of Lords. However, Acts 13.33 relates it to the resurrection. There we read that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Now Paul is speaking there, and he relates Psalm 2 to the resurrection. So he seems to suggest that that Jesus gets this title at his resurrection. Now, it's the, he doesn't get the title at the resurrection, but the resurrection confirms the title. That's the point I want to make. If we look at Acts 26, we don't have time. There's a parallel concept in Acts 26 when Paul's defense before Agrippa that the resurrection guarantees the hope for the fulfillment of the promises of God. See, the resurrection is God's stamp of approval, his public proclamation to one and all that Jesus is indeed God. This is seen further in point number, or this is seen further in Romans 1, 3, and 4, which we, where we read, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. <coughs> Excuse me, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the resurrection is a public declaration that he is the Son of God. It is not when he is declared to be the Son of God. It doesn't say that. It doesn't, it doesn't say he became the Son of God at the resurrection in Romans 1.4, but that was a prob- public proclamation. Now, to understand that, we have to look at the next point, point six, Hebrew background. Israel rejected Jesus in, as the Messiah in part, believing that no son of God could be crucified because of the Old Testament prophecy that cursed is he that is, is hanged. Cursed is anyone that hangs on a tree. So they could not believe that God could curse his own son. But the resurrection is the fulfillment of the Psalm 2-7 degree in the sense that it is the public confirmation and proclamation that God indeed accepted the sacrifice, that God is the one who cursed Jesus in terms of the condemnation of sin, and that Jesus was indeed full deity. So this is God's acceptance, approval, and public proclamation 
of Jesus' deity in the resurrection. So Psalm 2-7, therefore, refers back to the divine decree and foretells that God will declare this decree by the resurrection and bring it into complete fulfillment at the second advent. So the decree is made in eternity past. You are my son. And this refers forward. It is demonstrated in time through Jesus' birth, through his crucifixion, through the resurrection. It is publicly proclaimed. And then its ultimate fulfillment comes at the return of Christ to the second advent where he fulfills the promise and establishes the Davidic kingdom as the son of David. So it is a title that refers to Jesus in his deity which allows him to fulfill all of these things. That's why these, why the psalm is applied or seems to be applied to different aspects of Jesus' life because all of these individual instances relate to the overall backdrop of who He is as the eternal Son of God, that He is the Son throughout all eternity. Hebrews 1 through 5, Hebrews 1, 1 through 5 states this, that God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. That's his position as the Prototokos firstborn. He is the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, that is Jesus Christ, is the radiance. There really means like the flashing forth of his glory and the exact representation. That's the Greek word character, meaning character, identical in essence. The exact representation of his nature, uh, hypostasis, that's a key word we need to remember, from which we get our term hypostatic union, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee? See, when you read that quote of Psalm 2 and 1-5, it seems like it's related not to the resurrection, but to his session, to his being seated at the right hand of God. So Acts makes it look like it's the resurrection, as does Romans 1, 3, and 4. Hebrews makes it look like it's the ascension. Uh, Psalm 2 almost makes it, look like, uh, makes it look like it's at the second coming. So... This is why people get confused. And what it is, is God decreed in eternity past. This is who the second person of the Trinity is. He is a son. He is full deity. And he has a certain role associated with that that is an eternal, an eternal role. So the author of Hebrews says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And this is simply a quote saying that Jesus is a son, whereas the angels are creatures, and that is the radical distinction. Hebrews 5, 5 through 7, we see another statement or quote from Psalm 2. This is the Hebrews 1, 1 through 5 was point 8. This is point 9. Hebrews 5, 5, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, just as he, also, he says also in another passage, Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he has 
he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. See, there we have the term son. He learned obedience, and that refers to the whole incarnation. My point is that the Son of God is used of all these different instances because it reflects His essential, eternal nature of undiminished deity throughout all eternity and that relationship to God. Conclusion, Jesus Christ was decreed eternally to be the Son of God, indicating eternal generation, and this in turn reflects His true undiminished deity. This was declared to be so by God the Father by the resurrection and will be then recognized at the second coming by all humanity. So Jesus is decreed from eternity past to be the Son of God. That means it's an eternal generation. He's eternally in unique relationship to the Father. And he has declared this at the resurrection and it's recognized when every tongue will confess and every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord at the second coming. Point number ten, since Jesus is undiminished deity, he is eternal, and the divine decree is also eternal. Therefore, the divine decree means Jesus is eternally begotten, that is, the eternal, unique Son of the Father. This is why at the Nicene Creed they formulated the statement to read, I believe in one God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Just a side point. Notice how they always start with creation. It's fundamental. It's not an option. And of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten, monogenes, Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, or in some translations, true God of true God, All of that is how they're trying to state that he has the same identical essence as the Father. He is not derived deity. He was not a creature created or given deity at some point in either eternity past or in time. But he is eternally God. He is begotten, not made. All creatures are made. Being of one substance. There's that word, homoousios. Being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. This was hashed out and formulated at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. You know, the the, the two protagonists or two antagonists were Arius on one side and another uh, presbyter from Alexandria, Athanasius, on the other side. Athanasius was a great defender of the faith. He didn't have everything right, but he was right on this point. And Athanasius... um, Two years later, when Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria, died, Athanasius was appointed bishop of Alexandria. And about three years later, uh, he is, uh, there's another shift in, pow- in, in a power play, and Constantine's the emperor. So Constantine, uh, Arius, like most people, said, well, I'm going to sign that doctrinal statement anyway. I think I can kind of make, make, you know, convince myself in my own mind that, that, I, uh, that I agree with it. So Arius... Arius signed the doctrinal statement, and uh, Athanasius wouldn't sign it, wouldn't agree, knew there was something wrong, so Constantine exiled him for a couple of years. And then a few years later, Arius died. Instantly, he had, incidentally, he had some kind of intestinal problem and was taking care of that in the privy when he died, which has been a butt of many jokes for many years from, about heretics and how they die. 
So that, that was never brought to a successful conclusion in terms of convincing him of the truth. Uh, right after that, Athanasius was once again restored to his position in Alexandria, but only for part of a year. And then in 339, he had to take refuge with Julius, the bishop of Rome, until 346. So for seven years, he's in exile. Then he was allowed to return in 346, and there's peace about this whole issue until 355, and he has to go into exile again because now Arianism is back on top. So there's this, this fight that's taking place. And it's not until, and he's exiled like five different times before uh, in 381 at the Council of Constantinople, they finally agree again to the creed because it takes 75, or it takes not that long, it takes about, about 60 years before everybody begins to see that theological decisions make a difference. One of the great things you learn from studying this is that in most doctrinal controversies, 90% of the people don't have a clue. 5% are on one side, 5% are on the other side, and they understand the issues. The rest of the people, I think it applies to politics too, but that's another story. 90% of the people don't have a clue what's going on. And it's only for 60 years before that mass in the middle begins to see, because they let the bad guys win for a while, that, oh, this really leads to serious problems. Now I finally understand. And so they get rid of the bad guys and they reaffirm the truth at the Council of Constantinople. And ever since then, the Nicene Creed has been the orthodox statement of the relationship of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to the Father, that he is the eternally begotten, what we would say the eternally unique Son, and he is the eternally generated Son of the Father. He is begotten, not Made. He is not a creature. He possesses in full all of the attributes of deity. And so the Son of God is not simply a title he acquired at some point, either in eternity past or in time, but reflects his eternal deity. And as such, he can go to the cross and die as our substitute. So now we have a full understanding, a much fuller understanding of the Trinity and the relationship of Christ and why all of these things are important for our salvation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the time we've had this morning to study these things and to understand that our salvation is based not upon human works, not upon the work of a creature, but upon yourself. That you have done everything for us. You have uh, stood in our place as our substitute by sending Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten, the eternally generated second person of the Trinity, to take on flesh to become incarnate, that we might learn who you are and all about you, and that he might go to the cross to die as our substitute. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation, that they would understand the importance of faith in Jesus Christ, that there is salvation in no other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, and that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And all you need to do right now, right where you sit, is just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, that he died for you, was buried on the third day, rose from the dead, and you will have eternal life. Father, we pray for those of us who are believers, that we would be challenged by the things that we have studied, that we can think upon them and reflect upon them and have a greater understanding of who you are and what you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.